And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Monday, September 25th, 2023. Just a few days left in the fiscal year, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors, Daisy Thornton and Darius Lauderdale. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, defense spending too much or maybe not enough of the right things, that's part of the impasse, plus shutdown survival tips from someone who's been through them. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, are we headed to a government shutdown? Is there any other question this morning other than maybe the meaning of life? With just days for Congress to reach a spending agreement and no end in sight, many feds are looking for answers on what would happen to their pay, benefits, and much more in the case of a shutdown. Joining me now, Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. And, of course, pay generally ceases, fair to say, during the shutdown or accumulates, maybe? That's right, Tom. Federal employees, regardless of whether they are furloughed or accepted during a shutdown, are not paid for the duration of a shutdown. Now, something that we'll see a little bit different if there is a shutdown this year is we saw the passage of a 2019 law, which essentially guaranteed back pay for federal employees at the end of a shutdown. In past government shutdowns, federal employees have always been given back pay eventually, but it has always required an act of Congress. But now since this 2019 law, we will see that pay be confirmed for federal employees before we even get to a shutdown. If there is one, federal employees know in advance already that they will for sure be getting that back pay. So that is a slight difference this year. Yeah, sure. In the old days when they still got checks in the mail, uh, very often during a shutdown, you would get a check that had 00.00, (laughs) a check for nothing. But the machinery that ran the checking issuance still operated. So that's even worse than, I guess, not getting anything deposited, getting a check for zero. Too bad you can't fill in the numbers yourself. You'd be a millionaire. And health benefits, those do continue because you're still paying the premiums. Premium payments can actually be paused during a shutdown. Uh, If you're not having a paycheck, it makes sense. You might not have that automatic deduction taken from the paycheck if there's nothing to take it from. But health insurance coverage does continue during a shutdown for both furloughed and accepted employees. And after a shutdown ends, for the premium payments at least, previously furloughed employees can begin repaying those health premiums that accumulated during the shutdown. And uh, Tom, it's also important to point out here that furloughed employees do generally have to wait until the end of a shutdown before they can adjust their health benefits. That's important knowing that, you know, open season is coming up. The only exception would be if they experience a qualifying life event during a shutdown, they would be able to make changes to their enrollments uh, in those cases. All right. And then, of course, you've got the question of, well, I'm not working if you are not accepted. You can't really go on a cruise or hit the beach or otherwise have kinds of fun things because you can't use annual leave, right? That's right. For load employees cannot use paid time off during a government shutdown. That's because just agencies by law are required to cancel paid time off for furloughed employees. Even if an employee who gets furloughed has a vacation scheduled or approved in advance of a government shutdown, that would be taken away for the duration of a shutdown. For accepted employees, the situation is a little bit different. They can use approved paid time off during a shutdown, but they won't receive pay for the paid leave until after the shutdown ends, similar to the back pay situation there. It's also important to note, Tom, that shutdowns don't affect the accrual of paid leave or sick leave. 
So those will still accrue throughout a government shutdown, and then employees can use it once the uh, government shutdown ends. Yeah, it's definitely a situation that is unique to federal employment, the way that whole mechanism does work. You're right. If you're accepted, that means you would normally be going to work because you are, they used to call it essential, but they got away from that. You know, in the T-ball, everybody wins era, you're accepted or not accepted instead of essential or not essential. Like people like in law enforcement, for example, that are on the front lines, I guess they could elect to take a vacation then if they wanted to, but then it would be, as you say, under those rules. And if you're not accepted, that is, you're stuck home, you're really in limbo. You can't secretly do federal work either. You can't, oh, well, I'll keep working anyway. And you, sometimes they shut down access through the VPN to the machinery, to the computers. They used to collect phones and stuff that you could not take home with you. I don't know whether they get that extreme anymore, but you, you, can't, you can't work. You really can't. Uh, and there's no access to it. What about the thrift savings plan? Because some people want to take a loan maybe just to make ends meet, which they'll pay back, but you don't want to make a permanent withdrawal because there's huge penalties in that case. Great question. The thrift savings plan and the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board, which is the agency that runs the TSP, they operate a little bit differently because the agency is not funded through appropriated funds. So they are able to continue their operations as normal during a shutdown. This means TSP participants can still take withdrawals, apply for loans, etc. as normal as they would be normally if there wasn't a government shutdown. What For loans specifically, TSP participants, uh, if they miss a payment on a loan, it won't be considered a default this is something that happens automatically, so you don't have to call the TSP in this case or or the board to ask for that. You will automatically not be considered as defaulting on your loan if you miss a payment. And also automatic payments on loans will be paused, again, of course, because there's no paycheck to take that automatic payment from. Yeah, it's definitely a funny situation because people do make concessions to federal employees, health plans, the thrift savings plan, because they know of the situation. That's kind of a nice benefit in some ways that maybe in the private sector you don't get. Your medical care carrier doesn't care whether you're out of work or what. You've got to make those payments or the coverage ceases. It's good because the difference is in the case of federal employees, it's all out of their control, whether they're furloughed or not, or whether they're getting paid or not. And I guess some people might say, let me just bag this and I'm going to retire during the shutdown. That's complicated too. It is a little bit complicated, Tom. Generally, retirement services do proceed as normal during a shutdown, although they may slow down, of course, during a shutdown. Within the Office of Personnel Management, the retirement services staff are considered, or they at least were in the last shutdown, they were considered accepted. So they do continue to process retirement applications. Of course, you still have the general possible delays with OPM and retirement services there, but retiring feds in the meantime would be again receiving and will continue receiving interim annuity payments while those applications are processed, which again would continue to happen pretty much as normal throughout a government shutdown. And in the meantime, we are seeing agencies issue shutdown plans already. We're starting to see the machinery crank up, too. I mean, there's a lot of stories at federalnewsnetwork.com. For instance, IRS, I think, is the big one because they're finally getting over all of the ramifications of the COVID absence of people in the office. But that's different than the people that are not allowed to work during 
during the shutdown. So the best advice then really for what to do and what to proceed is your agency management at this point. Right. You can check your agency contingency plans. Those are available at the Office of Management and Budgets website to see, you know, what plans are coming up. And of course, agencies are still developing some of these. Some have not been updated this year, but we will kind of see how that plays out and more to come. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check her coverage, Jory Heckman. We all have coverage at federalnewsnetwork.com. Everything you need to know about the shutdown and the ramifications and what might be going on at your agency, keep that website bookmarked, federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, shutdown survival tips from someone who's been through four of them. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. You will survive the government shutdown if there is one, but it takes some planning and a little knowledge of what to expect. Former Postal Service Manager Abe Grungold is a veteran of more than one government lapse in appropriations, and he joins me now with some advice. And Abe, you have lived through more than one federal government shutdown, haven't you? Yes. If you are a federal employee, and you're going to be facing a federal shutdown, you need to prepare both financially and mentally for one. Because during my 36 years of federal service, I experienced four of them lasting at least a week, and the last one was 35 days. And this can be a very stressful period for a federal employee, and you need to be prepared. Yeah, I think the big difficulty or one of the major difficulties is even knowing you're going to get paid at the end of it doesn't help with the situation of a month or so when you don't get paid and you've got to still live through that period till you do get paid. True. You can be paid if your agency is going to allow it, but there is a possibility that you won't be paid. But to experience a federal shutdown, you cannot take annual leave, you cannot take sick leave, and you basically have to be available to receive the email or phone call from your agency to go back to work. So you can't just jump on a cruise ship for a week and have some fun. You have to be available and and see if you have to report back to work. Yeah, a lot of people say, oh, gosh, they get a vacation and they'll get paid for it at the end. But in fact, they have to be standing by for resumation of federal work. And yet they can't do any work while they are home. You're not allowed to work, correct? That's correct. You're not allowed to turn on your government phone. You're not allowed to use your government computer. And all your assignments or duties that you are working on on a day-to-day, regardless of how urgent they are, they come to a full stop. So you basically have to be prepared to go back to work when they do call you back. And getting back to the pay issue, if you're not getting paid, you know, for those at the senior executive level or the higher GS levels and so on, maybe high and scheduled, you know, 38, Title 38, if you're a high-level medical employee, you probably have means and savings to tide you over till those paychecks still come through. What about, and did you know people that are maybe a little bit more paycheck to paycheck because they are not at that level of pay to begin with? Yes. Unfortunately, Tom, due to the high inflation, 
that we've been experiencing the last year or two. A lot of federal employees are living from paycheck to paycheck. And, you know, it would be wise if you had three to six months of cash reserves on hand to pay your bills. But there are a lot of federal employees that cannot handle a $1,000 medical bill or a $1,000 automotive repair bill. They don't have that ability in their budget. And what about the psychological aspect of it? I mean, what does it feel like to say, hey, guys, gals, go home. Don't turn on the computer, but wait for the phone call. And I guess you would go back far enough to have had a BlackBerry when some agencies would collect them in a basket to make sure you didn't do email. Well, Tom, it is stressful. I remember during the Obama administration, I was listening to the TV every day, waiting to hear when we're supposed to return to work. That is the worst thing that you can do is listening to the television all day. I think the best is just to listen to it in the evening when you do hear that the federal shutdown is over. You need to keep yourself busy. And busy means exercising, cleaning out a closet. I did a lot of home projects during the 35-day shutdown during the Trump administration, and I accomplished a lot of things. You must stay busy because... It wears on you day after day. And I can recall getting a paycheck during that 35 days, and the paycheck said zero dollars and zero cents. And let me tell you something, Tom, that is a punch in the stomach when you see that. And I got several of those. I think that's something I would probably frame and hang on the wall afterwards. We're speaking with Abe Grungold. He's a veteran of several federal shutdowns, retired federal manager, also the owner of AG Financial Services. And what about the debtors, you know, the health insurance bills that you have to pay and so on? Did you find that they tend to maybe be lenient with the schedule of payments, knowing that they're serving a federal customer? who will be back at work eventually, but can't pay at this moment. Well, certainly your health insurance through your FEHB will continue to be paid through your federal agency. But if you come across some medical bills, you can be put on a payment plan, and you can certainly tell the medical provider, look, I'm a federal employee. They see you have federal health insurance, and you can explain to them that you're experiencing a federal shutdown. This happened quite a bit with uh, creditors. I believe a lot of the utility companies were giving uh, a pass to people if they couldn't make their utility bills for that month. They gave them a little leeway until they got back to work. Yes, you can notify these companies and say, look, I'm a federal employee. I'm, I'm in a situation and I will pay my bills. I just can't pay them immediately. Sure. And what about the possibility of getting temporary work during the shutdown? I think there's mixed guidance coming out on that one also. Well, that is a very touchy subject because federal employees are supposed to get permission from their agency if they are doing any type of side work or side business. You have to get approval because you have to make sure there's no conflict of interest. But I remember 
I did do some part-time work during the Trump administration, certainly with my own business, but I also did some acting work during those times. And yeah, wherever you can make some money, there are ways that you can provide some financial income for yourself. I have some tips and there are some things that you can do immediately if you're experiencing a federal shutdown, both simple steps and drastic measures, as I call them. And what are a couple of the simple steps? Well, the simple steps are very easy. It's eliminate all unnecessary expenditures like going out to lunch, dinner, Starbucks, and movie theater, lottery tickets, similar types of what I call entertainment type expenses. If you can cut those out immediately, you can build up a cash reserve quite quickly to carry you through a week or maybe two weeks. Yeah, so put now, that $5 for Starbucks or what does a movie cost nowadays? About 20 bucks, I think. Put that into a jar. That doesn't include the hot dog and the popcorn and all that. I mean, it builds up. But if you can eliminate those type of day-to-day expenditures, you can have some uh, extra cash. There are also some drastic measures that you can take, such as cutting off your cable or streaming service or looking for some old savings bonds that you have been given as a gift and cash those in, as well as possibly selling some items that are lying around the house. You could have a garage sale and get rid of those things that you need to get rid of and build up some cash that way. Another very important way to get out of this predicament is taking out a TSP loan. But that could take a week to 10 days to do. And no penalty if you plan to pay it right back? Well, there is a $50 application fee, and you can get a personal loan quite quickly, a week or 10 days, and you can do it online. Uh, And that is if you're eligible to make a TSP loan. You have to have a certain level balance in your account. But that is like the most drastic measure you want to do. And you certainly would pay back your TSP loan. And you can do that quite quickly or on a schedule. Got it. Maybe we should call you Abe Scroungegold. (laughs) Well, Tom, really, you know, I have thought of these things even before I was a federal employee. And while I was a federal employee, I, I said, you know, there's a lot of things I can get rid of, old family jewelry, things that are lying around the house. I sold a lot of my daughter's toys on Craigslist and I got rid of a lot of things during a federal shutdown. So it's almost like a spring cleaning and it puts money in your pocket. So, you know, it's really just a way to clean house and build up a cash reserve. All right. Maybe skip an alimony payment and see how fast that turns up. Abe Grungold is a retired federal manager and owner of AG Financial Services. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me on, Tom. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. The Federal Drive won't shut down. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
Still to come, there's only one question before Congress, at least this week, as we continue our shutdown coverage. But first, defense spending, too much or maybe not enough to do the right things, also causing the impasse. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Whether you think the U.S. defense budget is too big or too small, one thing is for sure, the planned rise in spending doesn't keep up with inflation. My next guest says there are ways to trim or reallocate those 800-odd billion dollars to get more capability. Heritage Foundation senior policy analyst Wilson Beaver joins me now with more. Mr. Beaver, good to have you with us. Good morning. Happy to be here. And you have written that because it can't keep up with inflation and there is political disagreement over how large it should be, somehow the two sides, roughly, there's probably 50 sides, but the two basic sides have to come together and find ways to help it keep up with inflation in terms of power that can be put on the front if needed, correct? Absolutely. For the next two fiscal years, at least, top line increases are likely to be pretty modest. So if we want a military that's increasing in capability, buying more ships, buying more planes, munitions, all the sort of stuff that military actually uses, what we need to be cutting is non-defense spending that's currently hidden inside the DOD budget, stuff that does not increase military capacity, but just uh, serves a variety of other purposes that are secondary. Yes, and you cite in particular research and development. The military says and the Pentagon leadership says that, well, the only way we're going to get to that next strategic offset, is their word, is with R&D that we spent similar to the 70s and 80s and developed all these technologies that are now wearing out in terms of their ability to give an advantage. So now AI is a lot of spending and I guess maybe new ways of stealth and so forth. There's got a lot of things going on. They need that, though, don't they? Right. But the problem is that they've been saying that for so long that RDT&E, uh, research and development, has almost caught up with procurement. Can you imagine if Ford was spending as much on research and development as they were on building cars? It doesn't make any sense. It is important. There should be money spent on it, but it could absolutely go down and be reallocated to buying ships and planes. And at a certain point, you have to build in the generation you're in. You can't always be uh, cutting programs halfway through and then working on the next thing. Yeah, they say, what is it? Procurement is deterrence in some ways, I guess, was kind of the philosophy behind that. But then you get into the issue of the new generation of platforms are also really, really expensive and take a long time. I mean, a carrier is almost 15 or 20 years from when you lay the keel to when it can actually be right. operationally deployed. And we know the cost of the submarines and the new fighters that 20 years in still really don't quite work. And so they've got to do something on that front, too. Fair to say? Fair to say. There's an old adage that you should really only add one or two major tech upgrades to a new program. The Ford had at least six major tech upgrades, and it spent the past year or two trying to iron them all out. I do think they're making progress. And by the time the next two carriers are launched, I think a lot of those problems will be ironed out. But like you said, it takes a while. And putting all that stuff in up front can cause problems. You know, and right now there is the threat of a federal shutdown. And so lots of budget arguments going. And I wanted to ask you, while we have you, too, in your experience looking at the defense budget, federal lapses and appropriations, how does that affect DOD? I mean, often the brass are saying that when they have a continuing resolution, that in many ways cripples their progress that they're trying to get to from year to year. What about a shutdown? For sure. It does cause problems. 
the biggest one is that it sends mixed messages to the people that are building stuff and buying stuff for the DoD. If they're not sure when their next paycheck's coming in, then it can be hard for them to make long-term plans, building missiles or building ships. But we are happy that all the negotiated budgets do leave defense alone, at least, and cut elsewhere. Because we think that these are priorities for the United States, that the security of the United States is best served by a capable military. The uh, national defense strategy says that a pacing challenge from China is its number one priority. And if that challenge is going to be met, it's going to require ships and munitions and all of that. We're speaking with Wilson Beaver. He's an Army veteran and senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Again, getting back to what you mentioned as a major discretionary item that could be reallocated, and that is research and development. But what else in there is really left to reallocate because of the high fixed costs that the Defense Department has? I keep hearkening back in these types of interviews to what Secretary Bob Gates said years ago, that the costs of personnel, particularly health care costs, both current and long-term for the volunteer force, he said they're eating us alive. And as you increase force structure, which right now there's no real momentum in Congress to do that, but even as you do, those long-term fixed costs go up. And how do you get around that without some fundamental increase in the budget in real terms? So personnel costs, it's true, they're high. But I've always thought that the well-being of the troops should be the absolute last place to look for savings, especially when there are so many other inefficiencies to be found within the DOD budget. One of them would be base closings, BRAC, but it's politically contentious because there's always at least one uh, congressman that wants to defend that base. The Pentagon asks for it repeatedly, but actually at this point they've stopped asking because it is so politically contentious within Congress. There has to be some wider recognition that If the military says a base isn't needed anymore, then you should at least consider closing it. And you also find that within the weapons systems they are planning to procure, that could be redone in a way that puts more tooth in the direction of what they say is their pacing challenge, which is China, and what it could do in Taiwan? For sure. All defense procurement should be informed by strategy. We shouldn't be buying stuff that doesn't match the strategic intent of the Department of Defense as directed by the president and the Congress. And if the Indo-Pacific is where we are supposing that most future military operations will take place, then that's going to be a lot more funding for the Navy and Air Force and a lot more money spent on long-range munitions and ships and a lot less on the stuff that we've been using in Iraq and Afghanistan for the past 20 years. Yeah, somehow the Army always seems to take it on the chin when these these force projection ideas... Which I hate because I was in the Army. I hate to say it. But if that's the strategy, then uh, the Navy and the Air Force uh, definitely need more funding. And within procurement itself, there is a lot of inefficiency. And the way programs just seem to get ever more complex and costly and further in the future, the F-you-know-what is always cited (laughs) as the prime example of that. But it's not alone in that type of uh, dynamic. It's not alone. And as F-35 purchases increase, costs will decrease over time. One of the best ways to decrease costs is with block buys. Like you were saying earlier, appropriations year over year sends mixed messages to industry and makes it very hard for them to plan long term, which drives up costs. One pretty helpful thing in the NDAA being discussed this year is block buys of munitions. All these missiles needed for the Pacific Ocean are being bought years out instead of just bought for this year. Uh, And that's going to drive prices down and it's going to send a 
long-term message to industry that the DoD is going to keep buying this stuff. And you make a statement to finish up here that basically the hawks and the doves, as they used to be called many years ago in the Scoop Jackson days, somehow have to find common ground. And what's your handicap on that ever happening? <laughs> Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't bet too hard on any broad cooperation in Congress, but I do think that there is potential for fiscal hawks and defense hawks to team up. If defense hawks want a stronger military, they want it focused on the biggest challenge, which is the Indo-Pacific. And the fiscal hawks want the public to save money. They want taxpayers' dollars to be well spent. And there are savings to be found in DOD. We've actually identified a lot of other ones in a previous report. It's like 40 pages long, full of recommendations, all sorts of budget cuts that can then be put into more worthwhile endeavors so the public's money is being well spent. Wilson Beaver is an Army veteran and senior policy analyst at the Heritage Foundation. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. We'll post this interview along with a link to his findings at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, there's only one question before Congress, at least this week. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. We continue with our shutdown coverage in this hour. With federal government shutdown machinery already cranking up, can Congress pull itself together to pass a continuing resolution? The situation is fluid. We get the latest situation report from WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. Well, can it? (laughs) It doesn't look like it. It certainly doesn't look like it. Of course, we've been through these many times before, and there always seems to be an ability for members of Congress to pull a rabbit out of a hat and maybe get a last-minute reprieve from this. But what's interesting about this is that the train is moving down the tracks toward this government shutdown, and really there's nobody flagging it saying that it's not going to happen. Many of the lawmakers who will usually hedge and say, well, we can maybe work something out here or there, they just aren't talking like that this time around. It's just because the gaps between... The House and Senate, as well as within the House itself, are so deep right now. And of course, biggest problem is the House Republicans just not being able to get on the same page related to a short-term spending bill. There's that hardcore group of about five or six hardliners who just do not want to have a continuing resolution, and they say it won't go forward no matter what. Now, what they're trying to do, at least for show, is to get some of the appropriations bills moved forward this week. But really, when it comes down to it, that doesn't really make any difference. Many of these people in the House Freedom Caucus say that they would like to get back, of course, to regular order and get all 12 appropriations bills done. Well, of course, that's just not going to happen this week prior to the deadline, which comes up on Saturday at midnight. So right now, everybody is just waiting, really, to see what's going to happen. Now, there is movement behind the scenes with a variety of possibilities. I'll run through a couple of them. One of them would be if the Republicans somehow were able to get a short-term spending plan and get it over to the House, of course, it would probably be rejected right away by the Senate. That's probably unlikely. Another more likely but still pretty rare scenario would be Democrats reaching across the aisle to help House Speaker Kevin McCarthy somehow get this continuing resolution across the finish line. But of course,
course, McCarthy has the issue of whether or not they would vacate the chair. In other words, make a motion to boot him out of the speakership if he cooperates too closely with the Democrats. So obviously, House Speaker McCarthy really in a political vice right now. And as a result, the country is once again facing down a possible government shutdown. Yeah, it's really amazing. I guess maybe both sides figure once it is going to be inevitable, what can we do to get the most political hay out of it, maybe, which is kind of cynical, but that's how they look at it, I think, sometimes. Right. And the polling has really shown that whichever party pushes to do this usually suffers politically. And all of the cases prior to this, it's really been uh, the Republicans. Now they have legitimate complaints about too much spending and they want to get the spending down. And Democrats even say that's okay, but they say, take it through the regular process. Don't penalize federal workers and a lot of federal agencies and other people just because you have these political goals in mind. And I think there is concern within the moderate Republicans. Republicans in the House and, of course, definitely uh, many Republicans in the Senate that this is going to hurt the party politically moving forward. Now, we'll have to see how long does this government shutdown last? Of course, we all remember the last one that was from 2018 into 2019, the longest shutdown ever, 35 days. I don't think that we would get into that kind of territory. I think there is a resignation that while the shutdown will take place, that they will start somehow trying to move the levers politically uh, with the Senate perhaps taking a more active active role to get the shutdown ended relatively quickly. But the idea of doing regular appropriations bills, that almost sounds like trying to play the violin on a storm-tossed dinghy. It really does. There's just not time. I mean, look at what the calendar says to us right now. We're in September, and they only passed one bill all year long, and that was in the House. How are they going to get anything close to all of these bills passed by this Friday? It's just not going to happen. We're speaking with WTOP Capitol Hill correspondent Mitchell Miller. And the failure of that vote, that was astounding on the military budget. It really was. This is something that just does not happen hardly ever in the U.S. House of Representatives. It's the procedural vote to the rule. You have to approve the rule to move on to the main debate and then, of course, the final vote on whatever the issue may be. In this case, the issue is an $826 billion budget for the Pentagon that, by the way, includes military pay raises. Usually, this is an easy slam dunk for lawmakers to get passed, but we were really stunned, everyone on the Hill, including the lawmakers, that Republicans for the second time, not just the first time, was unable to get enough of their own members to pass the rule to get to this Pentagon budget. And so, once again, we have a major legislative initiative that is stuck in the U.S. House. And, well, there it stands. And I wanted to ask you about something else that seemed stuck, and that is the vote on the nomination of the Joint Chiefs Chair. Why didn't Schumer do this months ago? Why did he choose now to do it? Because the holds are still in place, and most people look at this and scratch their heads at the procedure. Right. So looking at this from a broader standpoint, a lot of people say, well, okay, the Senate finally did take up and approve the nominations of the Joint Chiefs, the Commandant of the Marine Corps, the Army Chief of Staff. This could have been done months ago, even though Senator Tommy Tuberville of Alabama has had this hold on for more than six months. The reasoning, at least from Majority Leader Schumer's standpoint, is that many Democrats felt if they did give in early on this, that this would basically set a precedent that 
any member of the U.S. Senate could take any kind of issue, put a hold on it, and then just wait for the other party to cave. Now, some argue that this does open the way just for that. And there is concern within the Democratic Party about whether or not Schumer should have done this. I think ultimately, though, they just felt that they had to get these key major positions uh, high up in the military brass, obviously, moved through. Now, this doesn't really change anything, for better or for worse. Tuberville has not changed his position in any way, and we'll have to see whether or not this causes them to move on any of the other nominations. But there has been an estimate, if they actually went through all of the more than 200 nominations that are held up right now, that this could literally take months to do. What a picture you're painting. <laughs> it looks like, a, what was that one by uh, Picasso? Guernica? Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's what I'm seeing in my mind's eye, a giant mural of the ultimate chaos of, of Congress. Absolute here. ultimate congressional chaos right now. And one little thing that kind of came and went without a lot of notice, and that is a measure that the House Oversight Committee approved, and we should say that must have been bipartisan, which means that marijuana usage prior will not necessarily prevent someone from getting security clearance. Right. This was something that was spurred by the fact that many states, of course, have changed their laws related to marijuana. And one of the co-sponsors is Maryland Congressman Jamie Raskin. And in the House Oversight Committee last week, they had an extensive discussion about this. But ultimately, Congressman Raskin and, and some Republicans who also back it, including uh, Congresswoman Nancy Mace, uh, they say it's just really time to change the federal guidelines related to people that are applying for these federal jobs. So for somebody who had previously used marijuana and admitted it in interviews, that will no longer, at least under this bill moving forward, be a cause for them not to get a chance uh, at getting that federal job. And also it affects the security clearance. And a lot of people have gone through these security clearances. They remember this question. And in this case, they are going to move that aside as well. This is called the CURE Act, which is stands for Cannabis Users Restoration of Eligibility. But a lot of lawmakers from both parties felt that it was really time to move forward. And if somebody did partake sometime years or months or whatever it was a long time ago, uh, that they should not be prevented from applying for and getting a federal job. Yeah, with this new generation of lawmakers, they're like the uh, woman that sniffed the chicken and said it wasn't fresh. <laughs> and the butcher said, could you pass that test? So maybe this is what's going on right. here. But they've all had a little. And I just can't let the occasion go by without some thoughts of yours on what's the reaction in the press? What does it look like with the new uh, dress code or lack of dress code in the Boy, Senate? I mean, how far can they go? I know. This is really interesting. Amid all the chaos that we've been talking about with shutdowns and everything that's going on, this is getting a ton of attention from everybody in the Capitol. A lot of people talking about it. Of course, the Senate dress code, generally, you see a senator with a suit and a tie. And that's really how most of the senators, virtually all of them, uh, still walk around when you see them in the hallway. But Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer loosened that dress code. He hasn't specifically said why, but I think everybody knows why, and that is because Pennsylvania Senator John Fetterman, who stands very tall in the Capitol, also is very noticeable when he walks in with shorts, often a hoodie. I saw him last week walking with shorts and a short sleeve shirt with tennis shoes. He does really cut an imposing figure, and some say that it's an embarrassment, frankly. A lot of Republicans have sent a letter to 
uh, Senate Majority Leader Schumer saying he should maybe reconsider this. And even the number two Democrat, Illinois Senator Dick Durbin, actually asked Senator Schumer to reconsider this late last week. Now, there are lesser, uh, more kind of Friday casual close that take place here in the Capitol. You see uh, a lot of people have talked about the fact that they basically say that uh, lawmakers are wearing tennis shoes. Well, that's not quite right. They These shoes are kind of like all work on the top and tennis shoe on the bottom, if you will. And so uh, a lot of them just wear them for comfort. And I think those are pretty widely accepted. Uh, for example, you see the House Minority Leader, Hakeem Jeffries, who's a very sartorially uh, well-put-together person, uh, often wears wears these shoes. And uh, it got a lot of attention months ago when there was a picture in the White House with him and others. And some said, hey, what are they doing wearing tennis shoes? So that part of it, people accept. But there is a, a lot of pushback related to this change that's been made by the Senate Majority Leader. And also a very funny comment that came from Maine Senator Susan Collins, the Republican, who said, well, maybe if they're changing everything, I'm just going to wear a bikini to work. That is an image I think we don't want to be able to see because we could never unsee it. Well, you know, as one columnist said with respect to the Senate, you know, that's the same place where Robert Lafayette, Harry S. Truman, Daniel Calhoun, you know, strode into that right. very chamber and, you know, have a little respect for the uh, for the ancients. Anyway, well, we're not going to resolve it here. Mitchell Miller is Capitol Hill correspondent for WTOP. Tighten your tie, and we'll catch you next time. All right. I'll try to look presentable. Thank you. <laughs> and we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Continue your resolution to listen. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The Government Accountability Office has agreed to give staff a range of hybrid and remote work options, as well as a more streamlined way for staff to transfer to other GAO offices. GAO struck that deal with the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers, a union that represents 2,500 GAO employees. For more on the deal, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the president of the local 1921, Benjamin Emmel. In essence, this agreement takes the lessons that we've learned over the past three years and incorporated them into GAO's workplace policy. Our members support the Congress in a variety of locations and assignments. We've always been stationed here at headquarters in Washington, D.C. and in our field offices across the country. And we conduct our work wherever the federal government spends money. Now this agreement uh, expands the workplace flexibilities that the agency can utilize. It's gonna help employees manage their work and life, maintain their high productivity, and in return, GAO can be a good steward of taxpayer dollars and recruit and retain talented employees from across the country. In a nutshell, while GAO has had a negotiated telework program with the union for quite some time, this expands it from the prior allowance of teleworking up to four days a week to three different tiered options, you know, based on employee preferences and agency needs. Our prior program allowed employees to easily shift into the maximum telework during the pandemic period. And so really what we're doing is expanding upon that and using the lessons learned throughout that period into codifying policies that work going forward. So the agreement provides for traditional telework for a set number of days each pay period, a second hybrid option where employees in the vicinity of geo locations would report as needed, could be for a day or days or weeks at a time, depending on the work needs and projects. And third, a fully remote option where an employee works from their home or other approved location and then travels as directed to further our mission in support of the Congress. Just so I understand this, it seems like this is a situation where for each individual GAO employee, 
the in-work expectation varies considerably. Did I understand that that four days a week is was the baseline before this agreement, or where does the four days a week fit into what we've been talking about? So the baseline has always been, uh, you know, based on what an employee preferences are and what the agency requires. So previously, the maximum amount of telework one could do is essentially working what equates to four days a week from their alternate location with one day a week in a GAO location. So what we're shifting to now is a three-tiered model where uh, based on preferences and agency needs, it could be four days a month. It could be greater than that teleworking. It could be remote work. It could be an as-needed option. So we've expanded the range of flexibilities to include all of our GAO employees, both uh, on the analysts, to you know, support the Congress and then also our operations staff who uh, keep our agency facilities and operations running. Given those tiers, you said the employee preference is kind of what drives that, but how process-wise does that work? Does an employee say, you know, I prefer to have this tier of telework, this tier of hybrid work? Is there a conversation that needs to happen with the supervisor? What all goes into that decision-making process? Absolutely. It starts with the employee, you know, making an application of what they think works best. And ultimately, it's on GEO's management to approve or disapprove those agreements based on what their job tasks are and what their duties require, you know, so that we can continue our, our agency mission. It is an application process and a conversation that we expect to happen um, between employees and their management. Of course, some employees will choose primarily to work on site and will have job duties that will require more of an on-person presence than others. That being said, our work auditing the federal government and supporting the Congress continues. We'll still be writing our reports, conducting our field work, supporting our testimonies and briefings on the Hill. You know, our operations staff, many of whom who have been on-site throughout the pandemic, will continue to manage our facilities, IT systems, you know, our records and security functions. So you know, that in-person work will continue. It's really just the, the steady state requirements that may be changing for employees, and there will be a greater range of flexibilities than what was previously offered. I understand that in the lead up to this agreement, uh, GAO employees were looking at kind of the best practices of what works in this new age of how federal work gets done and just how work in general gets done. And you guys looked at some best practices in the private sector here. What stood out to you in studying these different workplaces and what ultimately did you gather from that research before getting to this agreement? You know, I think what we found in our research and, and continue to see in the news and surveys that today's professionals, you know, are looking for flexibility to manage and succeed in their work and also in their personal life. And as an employer, you know, GAO can now advertise and offer these flexibilities both to the current workforce for retention purposes, but also can recruit the, you know, the best and brightest from around the nation who might not be yet working for the federal government and are looking to replicate the benefits or flexibilities that the private sector might offer. It's clear that what both parties in this negotiation, this agreement wanted is that we wanted our in-person work to be deliberate and impactful. And so, you know, that's why we're saying our audit sites, our visits, our testimonies, our, our support of Congress, all that continues. 
you know, in those days when we were in the office, we wanted to be an intentional purpose behind that, not an arbitrary reporting requirement. And, and so that's where we come up with our three options that will really support the wide variety of work that GAO employees do, and that can vary from team to team and subject to subject. And so we're, we're proud of having those different options available that will enable all the individual circumstances. And that's certainly something that we saw both in our experience, our long history doing telework at GAO and also something that we've seen in the private sector as well. Yeah, I guess it's not lost on me that for an agency like GAO, the idea of coming up with an evidence-based, research-based proposal for why telework works and how that should be the model going forward, that seems to be a very fitting way for all of this to come together. Absolutely. I mean, in our professional work, we look to evidence and the facts on hand and, you know, this negotiation and agreement, I think, also demonstrates the collaboration that can happen between management and employees to making a workplace better. Certainly, we find that collaboration between our agency management and the union is one of the things that has made our agency the best place to work in the federal government for years running now. And the final agreement um, reflects not only the evidence that we've collected, but also that you know, high level of collaboration that we can have between all parties concerned and making sure that the final agreement, you know, works for the agency, ensures our mission going forward, but also works for employers as well in this competitive labor market. And you mentioned that GAO for a number of years now has been the number one ranked on the best places to work survey from the partnership for public service it seems like by all measures here this is just making a good employer an even better one uh, given these workplace flexibilities absolutely you know geo's telework program that was the product of negotiations between the agency and the geo employees organization it has been a popular one right it's been a mainstay of our collective bargaining agreements and agency policies for quite this time so you know really what we see this future of work, as we call it, this agreement doing is, you know, expanding on those, continuing our employer status as a, a model agency and, and doing so in evidence-based practices with all the internal controls that you expect from, a, you know, the nation's auditing agency, right? We'll have the rules and policies in place that we've, we've learned from uh, throughout the years of doing telework and, and making sure that this agreement doesn't have any impact and only enhances the work that we provide to Congress and, and being stewards of taxpayer dollars. Benjamin Emmel, president of the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Local 1921, representing employees of the GAO, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Temin.